Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today, I'm joined down the line by John Connell, the journalist turned entrepreneur behind the hugely successful global magazine, The Week, whose new venture, The Knowledge, is a news digest for the digital era. A newspaper man who worked for the Sunday Times, rising to deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph, John quit to launch The Week in 1994. The weekly digest of essential news and opinion became an international phenomenon, spawning American and Australian editions. John is aiming to repeat the trick with The Knowledge, a subscription app backed by Lord Rothermere, which promises to deliver everything you need to know about the world in an entertaining form. John, thank you for joining me. Nice to be with you. Let's start. Congratulations on The Knowledge. In a crowded online news world, I read it aims to deliver all the wisdom of the week in one place. Well, that's the idea. Yes, we, we, we do it daily. Um, we try to do it in five minutes a day, so we don't take too much of your time. And we have a little catchphrase at the end, that's it, you're done. Because so many things in life, it's very hard to finish. And so much media is very hard to finish. Once you're in, it's very hard to get out. So we try and do everything like the week um, with the knowledge, it's the same. We try to be brisk and concise and just get across to you all you need to know and a, maybe a few things you don't. Because I remember growing up in this sort of 80s where, you know, you'd be bored, whereas now no one's bored. It's the opposite, isn't it? We've got an overload of information. I've got hundreds of apps on my phone, tiles and squares, vying for my attention, whether it be podcasts, Netflix, uh, magazines, newspapers. I mean, that is the thing, isn't it, is how do you stand out from that crowd? Well, I think that's it. And I think you've actually hit the nail on the head. I mean, and, and in a way, um, what we're doing, um, I, I, I suppose it's a bit counterintuitive. But we're saying, look, there's a mass of content out there, vastly more than there ever was when I started the week 25, 28 years ago. So now we're not going to try and add to that um, din, that noise of lots of original content. We're going to try and bring you the best, the best content from all over the world, from media websites, from podcasts, from videos, from every other source. So the idea is that we are a digest, but we say, hey, there's a far too much out there. We'll make it easy for you. We'll bring you just the best. And how's it going? Well, so far, so good. It's very early days. Um, the newsletter is very popular among those who read it. Uh, we've got to put some more marketing oomph behind it, which we will do. That's all planned for the, for the new year. Um, and, we, you know, we, we, as I say, it's, it, it's, it's already established a rhythm. I've got a very talented little team. I'm working with my daughter, uh, Flora, who used to be a musician. Um, but that, the, the, um, the pandemic rather put paid to that. She did the... Uh, she did one of the last performances in the Al- in fact it was the last performance in the Albert Hall as the warm-up act for Brian Ferry and then that was it um, lockdown so she thought maybe she should switch careers so she and I dreamt up the knowledge during lockdown. So is she there to bring a sense of cool to help you connect with the younger generation I might, I might need some of her help myself I would say. No you've, you've got it entirely I mean you know I may know um, that there were bodies unburied on the streets in the 1970s but she knows all about the modern film stars and she keeps me she keeps me right on, on all the stuff on the present day. So it's a good combination between, I suppose, my long perspective on things and her fresh and more youthful one. I was talking with some of my colleagues yesterday and I mentioned, uh, I referenced the old show Heart to Heart. Do you remember with Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers? I do, And, yeah. that, and that was a big moment for me because a lot of my colleagues looked at me and went, what? 
And then I suddenly realised that I'm 20 years older than them and less relevant. Yes, but the odd thing is, I mean, we do have a, um, a little section from the archives. Uh, and, it's, it's, you know, although that is true, actually bringing some of these highlights from the past um, is quite fun for the younger generation. So one thing we do is we do Desert Island Discs, but we don't do it as the week does it. We, we find somebody who may have been in the news or, or somebody who, like, for example, when the Bond film uh, came out, we did Ian Fleming's uh, Desert Island Discs. Um, and so it's quite, just quite interesting interesting for people to have to, to be cast back into an age um, when they weren't around and see what people thought and did then. Walk us through the journey on starting the knowledge if you can because you, you moved on from the week incredibly successful I assume that you were financially looked after and therefore didn't need to take a minimum wage job you know at the local yeah. chip shop or indeed start something new um, and yet there you are getting stuck back into it is this because you've sort of got the bug and you, yes you... I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of incorrigible and I, and I can't really uh, uh, stay still so um, a few years ago I started something called Connell Guides and they were um, they're, uh, little books aimed at helping students um, get good grades in their exams, really English and history. And again, doing much like the week did, which is pulling the most interesting critics, say on Hamlet together in one little book with a clever academic doing it. So that in you know, an hour's reading, you get all the most fascinating insights into Hamlet or the Great Gatsby or whatever it is. So I've got 80 of those and I've got um, a, a little new other series of books called All You Need to Know. So um, I did that. Um, which took up some of my time. Then I thought up another idea, which was I, I felt that CEOs, busy chief executives, have too little time to read newspapers. And what they need to know is, is the, the trends that are shaping the world. So I created uh, something called Sunday Briefing, um, which is aimed at CEOs. And it's in a way the opposite of the week, in the sense that it tries to give you the stuff you can't read about in the papers. Um, and that's really aimed at just a very small group and it's quite an expensive subscription. So I've, I, I, I launched that business um, three years ago. Um, and so that's now up and running. And then, and then two things happened. Uh, first, the week was sold to Exponent, the private equity uh, firm. I wasn't wild about working for, for private equity really and that they probably weren't wild on keeping me. So I left the week uh, a couple of years ago and chatted, among others, to Jonathan Rothermere and felt maybe it would be fun to start something new. So the second thing that happened, of course, was, was the lockdown, when we were all uh, thrust together with our families. Um, and I was lucky to be with um, most of my family. And uh, as I say, I started chatting to my oldest daughter, Flora, uh, about the news and whether one might do something new. It seemed to me that you know, 30 years ago, the, it was a world of newspapers. And literally when we started the week, um, we used to be awash. The little um, uh, converted garage I started the week in was just awash newspapers all over the place. I used to have a, a retired army officer called Brigadier Clendon Jorks, and he used to make sure the room was tidy because it was so full of newspapers. Well, that's that world. Now the world is the world is so different. It's a world, as you were saying, just so full of all kinds of media, almost all of it online. And it just struck me that there was a, a gap here for something which addressed that world, not the world of newspapers, and moreover, something which did it daily rather than weekly. I think people's rhythm has changed. I think they, young people particularly, they want something every day. And 
they want something also which is a bit more multimedia. So if there's a good little snippet on the Today programme or a good podcast from you or someone else, we, we, we try to highlight it or a fun video. And also maybe finally, a little bit more internationally minded. So we very much mix up um, stuff from the Wall Street Journal or the Sydney Morning Herald with stuff from the Daily Mail or the Times or the FT. So, uh, or indeed from many of the brilliant blogs or stuff on Sub Substack. So we just conceived this very different animal to the week. And um, I suppose one linking thing is that I always feel these things have to have a character. They have to have a bit of edge to them. You can't just do a straight digest. The Times said this, the FT says that. I think it's got to have a bit of edge. Um, and um, that's what we've tried to do with the knowledge. Well, I'm flattered that you think there might be some good content from my podcast. Aren't there? But, uh, <laughs> sure there is. That's, that's very kind of you, but uh, you, know, you don't need to fib to... to you, someone's obviously <laughs> briefed you that I'm susceptible to flattery, for which I'm grateful. But uh, I mean... I mean, tell me about the vote of confidence from Lord Rothermy. He's bought a majority stake through DMG Media. That's an incredible vote of confidence in you, uh, Flora, the, uh, and the concept, frankly. Well, he's always been interested in the week, and he's always been interested in this kind of, um, of, of, of journalism. So I suppose it is, and I've known him for a long time, and I think, it, you know, and I think that he, he's, he sort of sees that this is an important um, developing market, and it's very different to anything else that he does. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we are moving into a world where, I mean, it's a cliche now, but where newsletters are the new newspapers. Um, once upon a time, as I said, we all ran, read newspapers, but the great thing about newsletters is there they are. They're, yeah, in, they're in your email every morning or every afternoon. You don't have to make an effort. You don't even have to go into the, your app. So it's, it's that, I think. And I think, you know, Jonathan Rothermere um, uh, sees the world is moving on. And, you know, this is, uh, this is where I think we are going. And we're going, it's, the growth of newspapers, in my view, will be exponential. That's point one. And there's one other point, which is I think that what we're also going to do is launch some more specific ones, newsletters, because I think that people are after niche stuff more now than they used to be. You know, I think that's, that's another point. I'm interested in your, your goals, sort of short, medium, long-term editorially, but also business-wise. Do you, do you have financial targets, if you don't mind me asking? Do you have a target for subscriber numbers? You know, I mean, clearly, like the week, this has global potential, as you say. Yes, it does. I think we, 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 we don't really have a specific financial target. It's very difficult with things like this. And I, it was the same, I, I think, with companies like Axios and um, uh, all sorts of digital companies. In the very early days, the aim must be to get eyeballs on it, to get people to see it. The monetization comes later. Uh, and it'll probably be, as with others, with us, a combination of some advertising, um, some sponsorship and some subscription revenue. Um, I think the first thing is to try and grow the numbers. We would love to reach 100,000 readers of the knowledge um, within the next couple of years. And how are you going to go about doing that? Because as you say, you know, it's difficult to stand out from the crowd now. Do you have like a marketing plan or is it more like the field of dreams approach where you would say, look, we, we've built this. It's a quality product, uh, you know, and let it sort of get some grassroots support and build some momentum naturally, like, like the week did back in the day. Yes, I think it's got, uh, there's got to be a lot of the latter. 
I think if you don't have that word of mouth still in this um, in this age of social media, you, you're not going to fly. So I think it does need uh, that. You're right. With the week, it was really word of mouth that did it. And I think with the knowledge, word of mouth will be very important. Obviously, we will do all the kind of Facebook ads and Instagram and all the rest of it and all the social media. And we will have a, a, as good a marketing campaign as we possibly can. Uh, and I'll get around the place and try and spread the word <laughs> like I try to do now. But I, 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 I think in the end, word of mouth is very important. And as I say, word of mouth, it, it, interestingly enough, particularly among women was what sort of swung the week, I think. Um, women are very good at talking about things that um, interest them in this way, probably better than men. And I found I found so many women I used to meet at parties and elsewhere who would say, you ought to be giving me a free subscription to the week. I've, I've sold so many subscriptions for you. You don't get quite so many men doing that. You're nearly 70, but you're enthusiastic as ever about your work. Are you a workaholic? I mean, you know, working with your daughter, have you, are you going to change your working style with this business <laughs> and do a bit less? No, 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 I don't think I can do a bit less. No, I, I suppose I am a workaholic, but I, I am doing, I'm lucky, like you are, I mean, I'm, I'm doing something that, that I enjoy, you know, and I, and I think if you're doing something that you enjoy, you, you keep going at it. And it's fun working with my daughter and it's fun doing something new. Um, and so long as I have the energy and so long as I'm touch wood, you know, fit enough, I'll, uh, I'll keep bashing on. And what feedback have you been getting from your, do I call them readers? Are they, what would you call them, customers? It's interesting well, they even sort of yeah, suggest the word. Yeah, I readers, or, or, I mean, they are subscribers, if they're, they're not paying. Um, but I suppose readers at this stage, oh, oh, great. They just say, this is just what we want. Uh, don't change the tone at all. Um, that's it, you're done. I love that phrase. Um, it's the only thing in the day that I feel I've really finished. Um, so we've got a whole um, host of, of quotes like that. I think everyone... I think it, 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 it is something that, that people like because it's quite quirky and it mixes, um, you know, interesting, original, arresting thoughts um, about the world with sort of quirky stories and quotes. I, I love quotes. So we're, and we're always looking for jokes, too. There aren't enough jokes around. So we're always looking at, you know, writers. Everyone like seems to be Hyde. miserable these days, don't well, they? It seems to be a litany of war. And in a way, I think something, and again, this was true of the week, and I want to make it even more so of the knowledge. I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it, but I do think that we are a bit of a gloomy bunch, us journalists. And I think that, you know, looking for sort of brighter stories which will cheer people up is no bad thing. And so I do think we, we do look for positive stuff, um, positive ideas. I mean, we're doing, we do, one of our items is called the case for, where we often put a case for something slightly sort of controversial. So we even did the case for the Taliban, for example, um, you know, because after all, a lot of people in Afghanistan um, like the Taliban, so there must be a case for them. And this week we're doing the case for America. Everyone is writing America off. They're saying the empire's over, combination of the pandemic, um, uh, social inequality, etc., which have killed off previous empires. Biden's all at sea, Trump was hopeless. And we're actually saying, well, hang on a moment. You know, America, um, she, it, it, people have a habit of writing off America and then back it comes and you do it at your peril, um, as Saddam Hussein, among others, found. So I think that's the other thing we try to do is not always look for the gloom and the doom. And I think surveys, media surveys, which editors do, show that the two things readers 
get rather fed up on is one, the sheer length of stuff, endless long pieces everywhere. And secondly, the endless diet of gloom and doom. Well, one of the things, I mean, you mentioned about subscribers turning into paying subscribers. I'm a paying subscriber. So, um, you know, I, I've certainly put my money where my mouth is. But one mm -hmm. of the things I really like about the knowledge is, is, as you've just alluded to there, is the what I would call the long reads shortened section. Because <laughs> I, I do want the long read there. I like the depth, but I also like someone that I trust to have read it for me and just summarize it because I've, my attention span is shot these days. Well, yeah, and mine too. You know, I mean, you say I'm very busy and I'm always working hard, but I'm also fantastically lazy, you know. Um, and it's partly out of laziness that the week arose and this arose. I can't really be bothered to read too much of this stuff. I want, like you, I want someone guiding me to, to know. So, you know, we were discussing yesterday a long piece by Ferdinand Mount in the, um, in the London Review of Books, I think it is. Um, and, you know, he's a very clever man and we will do that piece but we'll do it in a short version and then if you want to read the original off you go and buy the buy the London Review of Books so yeah I think I think that's something which has driven me is is impatience a bit and and, and slightly I would I think yeah laziness I don't, I don't really want to spend all my time going through this stuff I'm what I call constructively lazy. Like I, I want to do the minimum amount of work possible, but I am driven and want to achieve goals. So I won't shy away from the work that needs to be done, but yeah, I'm I, don't, like you. I don't fetishize it either. No, no, I'm like you. And I like to build in treats in my day. So we were talking before this podcast. I mean, I, I like a good breakfast with my porridge and I like to have tea. So I do, do build in sort of uh, little treats in the day, which I think everyone should. Things that you can look forward to where you make yourself have a break. I'm, a, I, I, you know, I, I'm not an obsessive meditator, but I do think there is something in this meditating once or twice a day for 20 minutes, because I think that people who are busy, well, you need to also have the capacity to relax and, and, and enjoy yourself, and you'll do your work better if you do. Do you have any enemies? And obviously, I don't mean that in a sort of James Bond sense. I mean, like sort of people you would regard commercially as competitors. I'd be interested in your view on the week. Or, or do you have the, the view, sort of an abundance mentality, where rising tide lifts all boats? Should I should I cancel my subscription to the week to read the knowledge? Is that no, what you want? Or, no, or... no, I wouldn't. No, no. I mean, I, I love the week. Obviously, it's part of my DNA and it's part of me. And I don't think I have enemies. There's no, I, 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 funny enough, um, oddly, um, when I started the week or in the early days, Boris Johnson was, uh, was editing The Spectator and he used to say to me, oh, you're taking my readers away. And I'd say, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, I might have been taking a few, <laughs> but you know, there's a, so there's a competition for, yeah, there's a competition for people's time. You're right. So up to a point, everyone out there is competing with me, all those spectators and new statesmen and blogs and other newsletters. But you know, I don't see any of them as, as, as rivals. I see them, for me, as just fascinating sources of content. Uh, and if I can digest them and, and highlight them for people, in some ways, that's a good thing. And indeed, you know, in the early days of the week, journalists loved being in the best articles page of the week. And some of them used to ring me up and say, why am I not in there more? Um, you know, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not sure necessarily their bosses were wild about it once it started being successful, but the journalists themselves, it was a showcase. You know, I didn't know The Guardian had such interesting pieces, kind of thought. Well, the only thing worse than being talked about, of course, is not being talked about. It's all attention is good when you're trying to sort of, you know, build your career. Actually, I'd like to talk through your career if we can in a moment, but I'd be interesting, interested to sort of learn about what 
how you've changed over the years as a, as a leader, as an editor, um, uh, you know, you've, you've obviously acquired some skills and some insight, but I, I, in my journey, I've also learned a lot about myself along the way. How have you changed over the years? It's a very good question. I'm not sure how introspective I am about that kind of thing. Um, in some ways, I think I've probably got more broad-minded in the sense if you're exposed constantly to different points of view, um, and if you're not a sort of naturally very, what my old colleague Frank Johnson called viewy person with lots of fixed ideas, um, and you're exposed to all these different viewpoints, you'd become possibly less certain about the world rather than more certain about the world um, as you get older. Um, which is partly why I like working with young people. And I've got a very good young gang um, on the knowledge. And I had indeed in the early days of the week, a very good young gang there. Because I think, you know, there is always a danger as you get older that you become a bit ossified and your view becomes a bit sort of, um, you don't really you stop thinking and you stop adapting. I've given up on thinking, if I'm honest. It, it's a it's a hiding to nothing. I, I tried it, and I've tried it for many decades, but now I'm just quite happy to just exist and meander through life. It well, seems yes, to me I, that I, it's just. <laughs> well, I think I think that's a good point. Depends what you mean by thinking, but in a funny way, I do. I <laughs> I don't think many of us think very much, and uh, you know, we think about obviously what Agreed. we're going to have for breakfast, or we think about, ooh, that's interesting. But yeah, I may, I go for a lot. Of, I walk every day, and I make myself think. So the knowledge or the Sunday briefing or the guides came out of thinking about stuff. So, you know, sorry, we're, we're diving about a bit, but, but the guides came out of my daughter, again, my daughter, Flora, saying, help, I need to get a better result in my A-level, mock A-level on the Tempest. I don't know anything about it. So I read the Tempest and found it pretty difficult to understand and basically rang up a friend of mine, an academic, who, the man who taught me, he taught me through it. I wrote her a paper. She got her A. And then I thought, going for my walk, well, you know, if Flora can't understand this play, if Flora's at sea and doesn't know which critics to read, then lots of other people must be like her. So I think what I do do is I make myself try and stand back from the world and think about what is it that people want? Uh, what are they missing? And that's one example. And I suppose that the knowledge is another. What keeps you up at night? Oh, I'm a very bad sleeper, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing and everything. Um, you know, it's just a busy brain, really. Um, but I try not to worry about, you know, I mean, I've done, as you say, enough things. And, uh, you know, work is work. And so I try not to let work worry me. Um, you just have to get on with it. There are always problems every day. Uh, any new business, um, it's a, it's a sort of nightmare because there's so many different logistical angles to pull together. Um, you're wrestling with so many different things. Uh, I, I think that if I made a big mistake over the week, it was that I thought too much like a journalist and not enough like a businessman. And I go on doing that, I have to say, even although I tell myself not to. So when Felix Dennis came along to help me on the week, um, you know, I... I, I was still too worried probably about what should be on the cover and which stories we should do and not nearly worried enough about how we drive the business, what kind of a deal I should do with Felix, et cetera, et cetera. I was going to ask actually what advice you would give your younger self, you know, if you could, if you could sort of quantum leap back into your age 25, would you, would you give yourself some sage piece of advice? Because yes, some people I ask that. 
Yeah. Because some people say, actually, I'm glad I made the mistakes I made because it brought me, made me who I am today. But what, what would you tell your younger self? Well, I prefer to learn. That thing about you always learn from your mistakes, but it's better in a way to learn from the mistakes of others, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, some Indeed. Depends. I would, I would absolutely tell myself that I have to learn about money and understand it, and I have to learn about business and understand it. Um, and you know, because if you're sort of, if you're going into a world like the world I went to and you went to in journalism, you know, it, it'll last for a bit, but there's so many opportunities to start something new. But to do that, you really do need to have a, a feel for how the business world works, and you know, the whole you bring all this stuff together and I think that I didn't really put much effort into that um, so I would have um, just paid more attention to and, and I, I would give that advice to any young person um, if they're at all entrepreneurial which is to is to study how other entrepreneurs did it and you know or find a friend who's very good at numbers and talk to them a lot and I think that really matters do you think that a young person now starting their career in journalism today has it easier or harder? Because in one sense, it's easy. You know, there's blogging, podcasting. You can make a name for yourself and then then be acquired by a major media brand. You know, but on the other hand, you know, newsrooms that used to have 80 people in them now have like four people in them. It seems that there's no money in journalism. And, and why would you bother? Would you even tell someone considering what career they should do to turn away from journalism? I think I... <laughs> I think I probably would, you know, although, I, I, as you say, in many ways there are, I don't think I would tell them to go and work for a newspaper. And if they did want to, starting out, I would say, go abroad to some interesting country and file from there or, do, or, or find a, a niche area that you're really good at and then, you know, develop that area and, 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 and suggest pieces on that particular area. But but I think it is a very hard area. It's, it's, it's quite hard to get into um, newspapers. In, it always has been. It was very hard for me too. But, but, in, but on the other hand, as you say, there are all these opportunities in doing your own blog or, or, or um, starting new websites. Um, and I think to that, it, it, in that sense, um, if, if you're sort of writing, if, you're, if your skill is writing, um, and you're quite entrepreneurial, then maybe this is a good profession to be in. Um, as I say, I think we're at the beginning of a, a trend here. Oh, the newsletter trend is, is well established, but it's got a long way to go. Um, so, I, I, you know, this day by day, we see just how successful some of these, look at Lad Bible, which grew out of the Facebook page. Look how successful that is. Um, so, no, there are plenty of opportunities. So I wouldn't be too dispiriting to people who want to do it. Who are your, your journalism media heroes? What journalists do you admire? Are there any media entrepreneurs that you, you have a soft spot for? Well, I mean, Felix, I, had a, I did certainly. I, I mean, he was, he was a bit of an old rogue in a way, but I had a, a soft spot for Felix, Dennis. I, I mean, you know, he was great. I mean, you know, he came along. He saw what I was. He realised that was a bit of, probably a bit of a soft touch, but very good at what I did. Um, he realized also that he could bring the kind of marketing and um, skills which, I, you know, we, we were doing the right thing, but we weren't doing it quite in the right way. And he lent us a publisher for six months to train up the person we had there. And, and you know, he was always very supportive and I kept talking to him right through. So I suppose in, in, in the media entrepreneur side, he would have been um, somebody I, I, I absolutely respected. And on the journalism side, well, I'd have to say Harry Evans because he was the first person really. I mean, I worked 
briefly, we can talk about this on the Aberdeen Press and Journal, but he was the man who took me on to the Sunday Times. I had the great pleasure of knowing Sir Harry Evans. I mean, he was a, a man of impeccable integrity, but also a bloody good editor. There's, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? No, you're right. They don't. And he, he just was a total integrity and a total focus. And you're right, he was fun to be with. I used to have quite jolly dinners with him in Washington or New York when I went over sometimes uh, in, the latter, in his latter days. And um, it was a tremendous thrill to join his Sunday Times. I mean, he was, he, he was a good editor because he was always, again, we talked about thinking, he was always throwing out ideas. And he was clever enough to be surrounded by good people who would filter out the bad ones and know how to run with the good ones. So absolutely. The, Sunday Times, the Sunday Times I joined, and I joined it in 1978, was, was absolutely buzzing with, with life and with good people. And I really was fantastically lucky to join that ship. I had Sir Harry on this podcast a few years ago, a couple of years before he died, and uh, it was great fun. It, 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 he attacked me immediately for being from Yorkshire, which I thought was great, <laughs> given that we were both sitting in a New York studio. And uh, yeah, we, we did a bit of work together afterwards, actually. We were going to launch a, a potentially launch a podcast, but obviously that, that ended with his untimely death. I'm very, very sad about that. In, in fact, I was going to ask you then, you know, given that you've mentioned a few points in your career, could you talk our listeners through your career? Did you always want to be a journalist? And, and what were the first steps that you took along the way? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think it was as logical as that. I was at St Andrews University. Um, I, I did my degree and towards the end of it, I thought help, I'm going to have to find a job. And Reuters sent me an application and it was so long I threw it in the bin. I, I said, I just don't think I can fill all this out. And then the Thompson organisation, who then used to own not just the Times and Sunday Times, but also a lot of local papers, um, they were recruiting. And they came and they interviewed me and they offered me a job um, as a graduate trainee. And I was sort of vaguely interested in journalism. Um, and I hadn't really got any other ideas as to what I would do, apart from possibly directing plays. But I was turned down by a couple of directing courses. So I forgot about that. So I ended up as a graduate trainee doing their graduate training scheme in Newcastle. There were 10 of us. Um, it was a four-month course. It was a brilliant course. And we learned all about newspaper law, shorthand, uh, public administration. And we wrote pieces for the Newcastle Journal along the way. And that's really where my grounding was. And then I was shipped off to Aberdeen as a Scot. Um, I seemed unable to escape it, Scotland. Uh, so I, uh, um, having grown up um, in Pitlochry and gone to school at Gordonston and uh, and then St Andrews, I, end, I wound up in Aberdeen, you know, writing about golden weddings and flower shows and learning how to spell people's names correctly, etc. And it was good experience, but I was quite restless um, pretty early. I managed to get some time off to write a book, a book about um, someone called Emil Savundra. Um, and in the course of doing that, the editor rather reluctantly gave me some time off. And I, I, I came to London and I, and I chatted to, pe to people from the Sunday Times Insight team um, who knew all about this guy. And we were in the pub opposite the Sunday Times building in Gray's Inn Road. And, and they said, oh, there's a job going on the Sunday Times. Why don't you apply? It's for chief sub of business news. So I rang up after a couple of pints and uh, got hold of the business news editor. Uh, deputy editor, uh, went across and saw him, 
And he said, after, he said, it's perfectly clear to me that you know nothing about business and nothing about subbing, so why are you here? And I said, well, I just want to write. And he said, well, if you give up your job and come down here, I'll squeeze you in for two or three days a week and give you work on Sunday Times Business News. So I said, fine. So I get back up to Aberdeen and I go in and see Peter Watson and I say, ooh, the Sunday Times have offered me this possible writing job. And, and he said, well, I suppose, it's, I suppose it's one of our sister papers and I, I, I'm not supposed to let you go for another year, but okay. And then the next day he said, he bumped into me again and he said, John, I think you ought to get it in writing. So I wrote a letter to uh, the guy I'd seen, Peter Harland, saying, could you possibly just give it to me in writing? And I got this ferocious letter back from um, saying, dear, dear Mr. Connell, there is no job on the Sunday Times. Don't think of coming south to try because we're completely full. Yours, yours uh, sincerely, Kenneth Fleet, editor, Business News. So I thought, help, what do I do now? I've just been turned down, and I've, but I've resigned. So I thought, bugger it, I'm going to go. So I left the Press and Journal. I went to London. I rang up Peter Harland, who'd been having a back operation. And he said, I'll quietly spirit you into the building. So for the first two or three weeks, I would slip into the Sunday Times and Grays Inn Road and write the odd piece for their business news uh, and slip out again. And in the course of that time, I met Magnus Linklater, who was then the news editor of the Sunday Times. And he said, well, you know, he got me to do a piece for the newsroom. And then I discovered that the Observer were doing a big investigation into corruption in Blackpool. So I went to Magnus and I said, why don't I go up there, see if I can get that story first. And so he said, oh, okay. So I went up to Blackpool, spent three weeks in a boarding house in Blackpool, and I got the story first. And I got the story of the corruption. And the chief reporter of the Sunday Times, Will Ellsworth-Jones, came up, met me in a hotel just outside Blackpool, and we wrote it up. And I got back to London, and the next week, the phone rang on my desk, and it was Harry Evans's secretary asking me to come up. And Harry said, OK, John, I'll give you a job. I'll pay you as little as possible. I think it was 2000 a year. And I'm sure you'll be coming back asking for more soon. And that, so that's, that's how I got my job on the Sunday Times. That that's is typical of Sir Harry, isn't it? I can imagine him in his uh, in his sort of lank, gruff Lancashire manner, yeah. sort of saying that really. I'll but I mean, what an incredible opportunity! What yeah, an incredible yeah. opportunity, though. Well, it was, and then and then, of course, five minutes later, almost, um, I, I get this letter uh, saying that the Sunday Times and Times are going to close for a year because uh, Lord Thompson was going to try and deal with the print unions, which were then a big problem. There was no remember new technology in those days. It was all and, and, and the print, printers were always causing trouble. If they didn't like a story, they would pull the paper and we'd have to adjust it. So, you know, it was very, very difficult. And, and, and Lord Thompson had enough. So I then found myself um, having a year off, although we wrote a book um, about the French um, mafia, the milieu, me and the Insight team. Um, uh, so that was a really rather odd way of starting on the Sunday Times. I then joined the Insight team, worked for them for a couple of years, and then I became, quite luckily, um, defence correspondent. What came next? And, uh, and then, so I was defence correspondent again. The guy who was doing it, Tony Garrity, was, went off to write a book on the SAS. And amazingly, Frank Giles, who'd taken over as editor, 
um, agreed to appoint me to that job. And it was the, the, the great, a great time to be defense correspondent because it was the time of CND and the marches and we were buying Trident and there was, you know, the defense review and so on. Um, well, then what happened was, and the Falklands War, of course. So after the Falklands War, I thought I would, I'd signed up to do a book on the defense of Europe. So I thought I'd go to Scotland for six weeks and take a rather cheekily a six week sabbatical. And when I got back from the sabbatical, the Sunday Times was absolutely in uproar because um, Henry Brandon, who had been the Washington correspondent since 1947, sent there by Ian Fleming, the Bond author, who was foreign manager of the Sunday Times after the war, had resigned. Finally, he'd gone. So all of these stars on the Sunday Times on the sixth floor, these feature writers, they all wanted his job. So there were endless, lots of applications and the whole place, as I say, was in uproar. Well, I discovered that, that Frank wanted to give the job to um, Stephen Fay, who was one of the feature writers, but he was writing a book on Peter Hall's production of Wagner's The Ring in Bayreuth and wouldn't be available for six months. So you can sort of guess what I did next, which was via the deputy editor, I suggested that if me as defense correspondent, if it would make sense, I was happy to decamp to Washington for six months and fill the gap. So Frank Giles summoned me up and said, well, I'll give you a little bonus. You can have a flat and you can keep your job, but go and hold the fort in Washington for six months. So I did. And it was in the time of Reagan, and my last piece there was saying, was written from California, saying that uh, Reagan would run again for president. It was a long piece. Um, I was quite proud of it. And I just got back to my hotel room in Santa Barbara and the phone rang and it was Andrew Neal saying, hello, I've taken over as editor of the Sunday Times. So I'll see you when you get back. <laughs> so, so anyway, to cut a long story short, Stephen Fay went out, but he didn't really fit in the new Sunday Times and he didn't really like it very much. And so I was then the automatic candidate, having been the sort of rank outsider who didn't even really want to go. So I became Washington correspondent of the Sunday Times. Um, aged 30. I bet that was an incredible adventure. It was an incredible adventure. Fantastic job to do. Yeah, I, I had a wonderful time. I, uh, I had a house in Georgetown. I was a bachelor. Um, and Washington is, is, you know, the proportion of women to men is, is huge. So there were, you know, there was always, I was always being invited as a spare man to, to dinners all over the place. The embassy were very, very good to me. It's the key for any foreign correspondent, the tip I would give, make friends with your embassy because they will have interesting people to dinner. Make friends with your ambassador if you can. And I, that, that was really important to me in Washington. So I just had a really good time for, for three or four years, four. When it came to an end, was that the right moment? Did anything Yes, happen? it was the right moment. I didn't want to live there. I came back, I took a year off, um, uh, which I rather enjoyed, because as I've said to you earlier, I'm quite, I've got a very idle side. And, I, and again, I was meant to write a book, but I, don't, didn't, I just had a good time really for a year. Went back to the Sunday Times as diplomatic editor, I think, and then was quite quickly poached by a new newspaper called the Sunday Correspondent, which was just starting, which you may remember, didn't have a very long life. It was supposed to be the Sunday answer to the Independent um, before the Independent launched their own Sunday paper. So I was hired as foreign editor of that. 
So I moved from being a writer to a bureaucrat. And I, and I really enjoyed putting together a team and I had a great time. And interestingly, I couldn't have done the week without that experience because in the second half of the correspondent's life, the editor was somebody called John Bryant and he came from the mail and he taught me things I'd never really learned on kind of the posher papers about you know, the Sunday Times, about you know how to lay out a story, how to make a story work with a picture, the importance of the headlines, captions, all that kind of thing, which stood me in such good stead when I launched the week. So I did that, the paper collapsed, I was out of work, I considered becoming an academic for a bit, and wondered what to do next, got, got rehired by John Brandt onto the European to reshape their features and their magazine, and then um, through Max Hastings um, became deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph. Um, for most of the time with my old, you know, somebody I knew well, which was Charles Moore. So that was... Did you enjoy being editor? Because like, I have a few journalist friends that, that see it as the natural progression and, you know, they, uh, their career, they're ambitious. But then like, I clicked Chris Blackhurst on many, many years ago. Oh, yes. and when, he, when he made editor of The Independent, he said it was that he, he hated it. He said, I'm actually a journalist. I want to write a column. I want to be having lunch with contacts and breaking oh, no, no, stories. No, 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 no. And I'm tinkering with other people's words and sitting in HR and legal meetings. Oh, no, that I hate his. writing. Oh, no, no, no. I've always hated writing. <laughs> right, OK, then. I absolutely hate it. I used to hate the moment when I had to sit down and write. I still do. I mean, I, you know, you do it. You're quite pleased when you've done it. But no, 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 no. I, rewriting, fine. But no, I, I, I much vastly prefer editing to writing. I'm the same, actually. I mean, I, I run a small PR practice uh, with about 20 people, and, and I don't want to do the doing of it anymore. Um, I, I liken it to sort of, you know, bricklaying. I, I, I used to lay the bricks myself, but now I want to stand over a team of bricklayers, and I, I, I can help them and give them the benefit of my experience and mistakes, but I don't want to do that myself. No, no, that's, that's exactly. It's a very good analogy. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel, too. It's interesting as you get bigger, though, because I was chatting with one of my friends the other day and he said, yes, but the next progression is, is that you're not even stood over the team of bricklayers. You're in the porter cabin on the building site, but you're 300 metres away and it's, or a couple of hundred yards away where you can't see what's being doing as it's happening. And therefore, by the time it then comes to you, if something goes wrong, it's often already too late. Yes. And I think that's that's a less attractive stage. I, I mean, I think the, the sort of hands on editing is much more fun. And I think when you're sort of really involved in the copy and so on. And so you don't want to be too far from the brickling. So, I mean, obviously, we've come to the, the point where we talk about the week. I mean, what was the genesis of it? I mean, what what a roller coaster that has been. Well, the genesis of that was I had a very happy time on the Sunny Times. And that was because um, um, partly because. Charles Moore is very funny. Uh, he, does, he may not always come across as such, but, and, and Frank Johnson, who the former sketch writer on the Times and who was the number three, is, was very funny. So we had a, it was a, just a very amusing, interesting time we ha had on the Sunday Telegraph. Um, and also, obviously, you know, because I was editing the paper quite a lot and Charles was away, it was very good for me to do it. But I didn't think I wanted to do it forever. And I didn't think anyone would ever move. Max seemed to me to be set, settled as editor of the Daily, Charles in the Sunday. And then what happened was that in early 94, 1994, my father died. And Charles said, you must go to Scotland and spend some time with your mother. So I went up. Now, Pitlochry in January, um, there's not an awful lot to do up there. Um, so I one day went for a very long walk. 
um, across the from the hill um, which our house looks out over and it's way over an hour and during that walk I thought well you know there I am every day reading these papers and I go into conference and someone says did you see that piece in the mail and I often say no I, I didn't see it and I think if we journalists, editors, whose job it is to read this stuff, if we can't read anything, think about the poor reader. You know, people are out there, how can they possibly cope? Newspapers are getting bigger and bigger, the magazines are exploding on Saturdays as well as on Sundays. And, you know, we can't get through all this stuff. Secondly, people seem to be getting busier, not just with their work, but with their hobbies. So they've got less time. So these two things mean that must be scope for someone doing a kind of digest of the best stuff, you know, because also journalists always, you know, that column in the middle of the Sunday, the Daily Telegraph or the Times, where it's always the same length. You may only have one little thought, but you've got to spill it out over 1,200 words. And I don't think, you know, you need all those words necessarily to get across the point that these people are always are often making. And then I thought, well, it'll have to have a bit of character to it. It'll have to be fun. And you'll have to have some pictures, but we could do the best houses, so we get pictures of houses free. We could do a bit from radio, the arches might be fun, um, and desert island discs, of course. So I got back to the house, and there were, weirdly, there was the Observer was there, and there was a piece by Alan Watkins on the tabloids having too much power. So I took it and wrote it up and found 190 words. I could summarize it with a few quotes. There was a piece in the Mail on Sunday, even back then, that hunting was an issue and John Mortimer defending hunting. So I did the same for that. So I satisfied myself that, you know, this could be done. And I guessed, although legally I had to get a lawyer to tell me I was right, that fair dealing would mean that it was perfectly except okay to do this kind of thing. So I did then what every journalist did, which is, uh, which is very little, but but talk about it, think about it, and go back to the office and continue with my job. And then one day I woke up and I thought, I can't, I've got to, I've just got to take the plunge. So I went in to see Charles and I said, Charles, I'm afraid I'm going to leave. Um, and I've got a project, I'm a bit superstitious about talking about it too much, but it's a magazine, I just want to do it. And Charles said, well, you can't leave now. And I said, no, no, you know, six months, is, I'll stay, I'll stay. And so I ended up leaving Six months later, he actually rang me up in the summer and said, you know, I've left Frank Johnson editing, come and stay with me for a day or two. So suddenly there I am. Um, we moved to the country, to the house I'm in now in Wiltshire. We sold our house in London. Um, I had no money. I had one young child and another one on the way. Um, and I trailed in back and forth to London to see venture capitalists who didn't seem to be very adventurous and certainly didn't want to back me. But I was trying to raise a sort of awkward sum, which was, um, which was basically a million and a half. Um, it was too small for them and too big for my friends in those days. It's like an awkward middle, middle it was an, oh, Exactly. I mean, I didn't really realise that if you'd ask for sort of 50 million, then venture capitalists might look up, but, you know, asking for one or two, not enough. So... I, in the end, um, I was put in touch with somebody called John Gordon, who ran a company called The Register Group. He was quite interested. I did, a dumb, I, I did a dummy in his office. He suggested I go and meet a friend of his called Jeremy O'Grady, who wasn't really doing very much, uh, sort of semi-academic. Uh, and I did meet Jeremy and 
he proved to be a great asset to me, a wonderful writer, and helped with his personality and the stamp he put on the writing. You know, so we did the dummy together, he and I. And um, meanwhile, I began recruiting people. Um, I then basically plunged in with half my money from the house we'd sold in London, put a hundred thousand in, and another hundred thousand from friends, and off we went. I rented a converted garage near Paddington so I could come in to Paddington Station and walk to the office. Um, and we just launched. And I remember going on the first night to the printers, you know, the middle of the night, we were up in Bicester and waiting for the first copies off the press, putting them into my car, driving to London. I got all my friends together in the Cobden Club in Fulham. How did that feel? Well, I was quite tired by then, but I gave them all coffee and everything and told them they had to get out their address books and send the week to everybody they knew. So and I then sat back waiting for the subscriptions to roll in <laughs> and about three people subscribed. And so, you know, the whole thing, um, it, it, people don't believe it at first. They, they see this and they think that's not going to last. A friend of a friend of mine said, I'd give it three. Three what, said my friend? I'd give it three months. <laughs> You know, so we we but we we went off charging along and um, and then, as you mentioned earlier, I got this card through the post and it said, uh, dear John, I've discovered your magazine. Someone put it in my briefcase. I think it's very good. Um, if you're looking for money, would you like maybe to have a drink one day? Yours, uh, Felix Dennis. So I talked to Clendon Dawkes, who I mentioned, who was our office manager. And, and he said, well, you know, the numbers are getting a bit low. So I, I rang up Felix. I went to see him. And um, again, to cut a long story short, he took a steak and uh, I went and sat out in the garden of his, it was a lovely summer, 1995, in the garden of his house near Stratford. And we came up with a deal. It uh, wasn't a very well thought out one from my point of view, but, uh, but he snapped it up. And from then on, there he was. And, um, you know, it, it took longer than most people imagine. It was a success esteem longer, but the, long before it was a proper success. It really took six, six years to get six, seven years to be really successful. But, but we, we did it in the end. I'm a massive admirer of Felix Dennis. I do a bit of work with Dennis Publishing, have done for many years. Um, and I just, I, I, I've read How to Get Rich so many times and he, he talks very fondly of his relationship with you and how he helped you the magazine. He takes credit for uh, advice or instructing or maybe suggesting maybe that uh, you had a recap of the week's weather. Um, yes, I, 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 you know, oddly, I think he may have suggested it, but I also was rather obsessed with the weather. Um, he and I and shared this obsession. I mean, we used to have this rather dotty map. I'm afraid it's been dropped now, where we would show the, the warmest place last week, the wettest place, the windiest place, and so on. And actually, we just like that kind of thing. Yes, I, I, do, I do remember him mentioning it. Um, and I'm rather glad we had it. I'll tell you how one of the phrases that I picked up, for, I'm a very long-term reader of the week. I, I look forward to arriving in the letterbox every, every week. But um, one of the things that uh, we have a weekly catch-up in my own business, and one of the, the headlines for our agenda is boring but important. Yes, 
it's so important that boring but important and i mean i actually it's slightly been dropped now after after i've left but i i i actually believe strongly and i must re-resurrect it i might use it because it's a very good headline because there is an awful lot of stuff which is boring but important i was pleased with that one and the other one i was pleased with which wasn't my idea but a friend of mine's was it must be true i read it in the tabloids yes absolutely i've always done that and i i condemn that column because it's just tittle tattle and gossip but boy do i read it every week well that's the point <laughs> <laughs> you need a bit of tittle-tattle and gossip. Imagine that we'll be adding some violin music now in post, you know, when we do the edit. Do you have any regrets? Yes, I suppose I have lots of regrets, but I'd have to think hard about what they were. I mean, I, I regret not having been... I'm not very good with money, and I never have been, and I should have been a lot better and cannier in the early days of the week. Less cavalier, put it that way. I mean, Felix would chide me a bit about it afterwards. I was too cavalier. And I tend to be a little over hasty in plunging into things without always thinking the business side through. I would say that I'm quite a good entrepreneur, but I'm really not a very good businessman. And I would always need alongside me someone who um, steadies the ship in, in that sense. I that sounds like me. Driving things, but I definitely need, you know, a, a steady pair of hands alongside. So, I th and, and, and you know, I, I, I do, I'm fascinated by the process of making money and I really admire a small entrepreneurs and small businessmen. I know how hard it is and businesswomen. And, um, but, you know, and I slightly wish that I was better at business. So I suppose that's one of my regrets. I work with like ultra successful people. Many of them are billionaires, serial entrepreneurs, and it fascinates me. And I mean, I, I run my business reasonably well, but like, I, I'm not a serial entrepreneur like they are where they could own a bowling alley and a newspaper and a hotel and they, they can look at a balance sheet and a P&L and know what to look at and things. Right? They just seem like numbers to me. Yeah, well, I'm like you and I'm afraid my eyes glaze over, which they shouldn't. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. So um, do you have any sort of big unticked boxes on life's to-do list? I mean, clearly you've got this to, to sort of see through over the next few years so it can fulfil its potential. D will you ever slow down or will you, will you be sort of editing this, this app and this website for, as they lower you into the coffin? Probably, yes. I mean, I, no, I, I, you know, I always think I should, I'd, I'd like to not slow down. I think the key, you know, is, is holidays. I think everyone should have good holidays and not stint themselves on them. And I, and I think that's important. It's always been a key part of my life. I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to go away um, actually tomorrow to the, to the Caribbean for Christmas. And, and you know, I'm rather looking forward to it. And I think you need good breaks. You need to get away from the daily grind. Apart from anything else, you, that's where you can think when you're in a different environment. So, so long as I'm able to go on having nice holidays and see uh, interesting places and sit in the sun sometimes, I'm quite happy to keep bashing on on the work front. I always have my best ideas when I'm in the shower or when I'm driving or something where I need to be awake, but I'm not, I'm basically not staring at my inbox waiting for something to go wrong or to, to react to something exactly. because you don't get that quality time do you to to actually reflect and you, you don't get that space for an idea to just pop in there no and uh, you know i i, I think I, 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 with me it's probably more when i'm walking or possibly just you know waking up in the night but it's it's it definitely isn't when you're running along day by day because most of the time most of us just do the same things over and over again don't we and you have to deliberately break out of that. Are you an optimist? Yes. Overall, yes. I think I'm a. I think I'm a bit of a 
pessimist of the intellect and an optimist of the will. In other words, you know, I, I can see all that's wrong with the world, um, but I basically believe, um, you know, I've always believed that things I do are going to work out somehow. And I think you have to believe that. And again, going back to something we talked about earlier, I think that ought to infuse the knowledge too, that, yeah, the world's a difficult place, but somehow or other we'll muddle through. A friend of mine, uh, I don't know where he, he stole it from, but he, he mentioned the phrase tough-minded optimism, which I quite like, really. It's not about running away from reality, but neither is it allowing it to get you down. It's about, his, his view is the way to solve your problems in life is to go about solving your problems. Well, I mean, that's why I partly, I do this thing for CEO Sunday Briefing, which is uh, very well edited by someone called Alex Starrett. But capitalists on the whole, CEOs on the whole, are optimists. They have to be. They're running big companies. They're trying to make them successful. They've got to see the trends which are going to work in their favor and how they use them. So they are optimists. Successful people on the whole are. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very important trait. And, and, and on the whole, happy people are optimists. John, that was a hugely interesting conversation. I've long been an admirer of you as an editor, as a journalist. I've read the week for years. I wish you the very best of luck with the knowledge. I am a paying subscriber. I'll be reading every week. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. I much enjoyed it. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Listener.